Hey guys, it is Wednesday, September 4th. I have another awesome guest coming on the podcast today, Karen Atoni with Hyperledger. Karen joins me to discuss what Hyperledger is, the projects that are being developed underneath the Hyperledger umbrella, and what to expect from Hyperledger going into the future. On a separate note, shout out to Feedspot for including the Blockhash podcast on the top 50 blockchain podcasts for 2019. We are at number 13. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. As always, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already and share this episode with your friends, your family, your colleagues, anyone that you think needs to learn more about blockchain. Enjoy. This is the Blockhash Podcast. Well, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Um, Thank you for taking the time. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you kind of got into the blockchain space. Hi, thank you for having me on as well. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I was just listening to an episode yesterday and it was very interesting. So I'm excited to be on myself. My background is a bit different than uh, maybe the most, most of the guests that you have in the podcast. Um, I come from a completely uh, different industry and completely non-technical background. Mm-hmm. So I studied international relations in college and that led me to the field of international development, which is complicated to explain in the tech space because it doesn't mean development in so- as in software development, right. but the development of um, economies and societies. And so I worked with uh, various organizations that are donor funded, whether by the U.S. government or other other donors or other governments um, to implement projects, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. So I worked on projects that related to agriculture, democracy and governance, trade, health, um, and spent a Spent about six years uh, living in East Africa as well. Very cool. Where in East Africa? In Burundi and Ethiopia. That that must have been a fun experience. Yeah, it was amazing. (laughs) Um, There, you know, Burundi is obviously a place that most people in the country have never gone to, much less heard of. Mm -hmm. um, With a very fascinating history, um, very connected to Rwandan history as well. Um, and then Ethiopia is just, um, such an, a fascinating place because it's kind of like India where you, you go and you find out that there's so many, um, regions and unique aspects to each region, right? Like they mm-hmm. have their own languages, their own culture. Um, there isn't really like an India, um, and Ethiopia is very similar. Each region is, is almost its own little world. Ethiopia is the one that's kind of like on the horn of Africa, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm talking about it's in the eighties for having a famine. Um, they're really sensitive to that history, but it's actually one of the fastest growing economies in Africa along with Nigeria. That's awesome. Why are they uh, growing so quickly? Is it just modern technology coming in or social change or what is it? Um, well, a lot of investment. They're both those. Those are both countries. I mean, Nigeria's a little different. They've got oil. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that helps. Um, in Ethiopia, the, it's a heavy agriculture. So a lot of um, livestock, leather, 
um, and different kinds of um, crops. Mm-hmm. And coffee, of course. So coffee is a huge export for Ethiopia. You can find Ethiopian coffee at any local cafe that you go to mm-hmm. here in the U.S. Um, and it's really good coffee. Very good coffee. So, um, but what I think what's really making them boom is, you know, these industries have gotten a lot of investment and development from the government and, um, there's a very large population. So I think Ethiopia, um, is, is, has not hit a hundred million yet, but I think they're very close, um, 90 million something people. So also one of the largest populations in Africa. Um, and it, they benefit from a large uh, diaspora as mm-hmm. well. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know about the, the large Ethiopian populations here in the U.S., um, in D.C., in Seattle, different parts of the, the world as well. Do, are they traveling and spreading out, like Ethiopians in general? Well, a lot of people – so um, – History of Ethiopia is very interesting. They had um, an emperor, um, Emperor Haile Selassie, uh-huh. who's actually one of the first first African heads of state to speak at the United Nations back in the '60s. Um, and uh, unfortunately, they he was uh, taken down, and a communist regime came into place after that, called the Derg. And during that time period, many Ethiopians uh, left. And so that's why there's such a strong diaspora in different parts of the world, because they were leaving that regime. Very interesting. Yeah, I I love learning about history. How long were you in Ethiopia? Uh, Four years. And while I was there, I was working for um, the U.S. Agency for International Development and also doing some of my own consulting as well. And I was actually in Ethiopia when I first learned about Bitcoin. Oh, well, so how how did you learn about Bitcoin in Ethiopia, of all places? I mean, it's really, it was just um, seeing news stories come up from it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Ethiopian telecommunications is nationalized. It's, it's still nationalized, uh-huh. um, which makes it um, uh, the speed something to be desired. Right. And, um, and so, you know, I was, uh, just started to hear, I think around maybe 2013, 2014, um, just news stories around something called Bitcoin and I just didn't know what it was. So I read the Wikipedia page on it, <laughs> um, and thought, oh, that's interesting. Um, but didn't really get involved in it. Didn't do anything with it. It was a, a long time before I kind of came back to that, that world afterwards. Right. Are they using Bitcoin in Ethiopia? Uh, at the time, I don't think so, unless you were very savvy and ahead of the mm-hmm. curve. Um, now, I, I think that there are a few, um, but it's still, you know, it's as challenging um, for anyone else in, 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 in those countries to use. You have to have a smartphone, right? You have to kind of know how it works. Mm-hmm. So I think it's still fairly challenging for people to use it. I know a while back there were a number of people that were traveling there just to take advantage of the arbitrage because there were a lot of people that wanted to buy it um, in certain parts of Africa that just couldn't get their hands on it. So I know a lot of people that would go over there with Bitcoin um, and exchange it for like twice the price. Yeah, I can imagine that's definitely happened. Yeah, that's really interesting. It definitely sounds like Africa's really on the up and up right now. Absolutely. There's a lot going on. 
um, if you're paying attention. And, um, uh, you know, there's a lot to follow. You know, it's got a very young population. I, I don't know the statistic off the top of my head, mm-hmm. but, you know, there's a, a very large percent of um, the population in Africa is, you know, 25 and under. Um, so it's a very young continent um, that is growing up in a digital age and once and, and, and digitally native and sees, um, uh, sees how they could is connect is very much connected to the world and knows what's going on in the world and using that to solve, uh, for, um, you know, maybe issues that have been, have gone unresolved for a long time in their own countries. I, I know that that's the same case in India, too. I know that India's average population is also very, very young, like early 20s, like under 25. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And they're expected to grow tremendously at some point, um, given modern technology yeah. and then leaping over certain um, tech implementations that they just didn't get over the last 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and I know Africa is kind of primed for that. S- same with some countries in Latin America. But yeah, it looks like Africa is definitely growing quite a lot. And I've also noticed that there's a lot of Chinese going in and buying up land um, and developing in Africa as well. Were there any Chinese in Ethiopia? Absolutely. They are definitely there. I mean, there's there's always been that um, sort of uh, political connection mm-hmm. ever since the communist regime in Ethiopia um, was in power. Now it's a, a, a democratically elected regime. Um uh, but the, the, there's always been that connection and, and even more so in the last 10 years or so, 10, 15 years, um, a real commercial uh, partnership. So the Chinese government is, is doing a lot of major construction projects in Ethiopia and other parts of Africa as well. Or is it, is it mostly like land deals or are they pulling natural like resources out of the ground out of Africa and then taking it back to China or like what, what's their primary reason for putting so much time and money into Africa? I think, I mean, it's influence, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're getting into like political he- hegemony. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it, so it's, 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 it's really that influence to counteract the American hegemony. Ah, okay. Um, so uh, they're helping build roads, infrastructure, um, railways, dams, things like that. Um, they definitely do uh, import some of the uh, like agricultural products as well. Um, but a lot of it is more, from, from what I understand, uh, construction. Very interesting. It sounds like you had quite the experience in Africa for sure. I don't think a lot of people get that nowadays. How did you get from Africa and your experience there to where you are now? Or what did you do after Africa? So um, after spending six years abroad, um, I really I really wanted to go back to school. And um, I'd seen how public sector uh, projects work uh, in abroad and really wanted to see how I could get involved on the business side of things. So I went back to the U.S., went to grad school in North Carolina at Duke University, got an MBA there, 
Um, and it was during my MBA that I started to uh, get exposed more to blockchain, um, that I started to hear about it. Um, our, our university actually offered a class uh, called Crypto Ventures. And I unfortunately didn't take the class, but I was, I thought oh, about man. it. <laughs> <laughs> I really wished I had taken it, um, later. Um, but, uh, it was, it was when I was looking for an opportunity after business school that I connected with a former, uh, s- student from my school who was working at Tata Consulting Services Mm-hmm. And he was telling me about his work and how he was um, working on this technology called blockchain and helping companies understand what it is. Um, and I found that really interesting. And um, I just, it, it really sounded more exciting than a lot of the other opportunities that were being presented. And so um, I applied and, and joined the, the, the Tata team here in New York City and joined his team. <laughs> um, and, and that's how I got my entryway into the blockchain space. I started working on uh, what, what started off as an innovation team um, and became kind of the early blockchain team at Tata Consulting Services, where we were in, um, I started joined in 2016. So, um, but they had already started working on this maybe in the year before. And we were putting together workshops to, you know, that was early stages still for enterprises. And so we were helping enterprises understand the opportunity, understand what this technology was about and what the use cases were that were relevant. Yeah, that's, that seems like quite a pivot from what you were doing into blockchain. And yeah, that's really cool. It was, it was, it was definitely a pivot and was kind of unexpected. Um, I've always sort of followed what I found was something that resonated with me and was interesting, but um, Mm -hmm. it does connect in the sense that um, what drew me was what I saw this technology could do in terms of social impact, in terms of how I saw it could help um, the environments that I had just spent living in abroad, um, help people have more agency, um, uh, transparency, accountability, um, and inclusion as well in the uh, mm-hmm. global financial system. What, what are some examples of what, like, how you see that making an impact in terms of blockchain? Yeah, so you know, I think the 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 first use case is Bitcoin, right? And um, is basically a, a creating a global currency, and I think that's that's like the first that, that that's the first example that comes to mind mm-hmm. um and that really you know existed and i think the idea of there be of it being just easy to send money <laughs> across uh border right. to people that you know i mean just that you know is 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 huge because there's such a significant uh premium that's that's put on um, anyone who tries to, to do that right now with other mechanisms. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's obviously not there yet and, and widely adopted in a way in which we're all doing that. Um, but I feel like that's, that's the first glimmer of where things could go as, as Bitcoin or maybe other 
internet, you know, global currency adoption happens, but I, I really feel like it's probably going to be um, most likely Bitcoin or some close inter- iteration of it. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of other projects out there that are exploring uh, things related to um, identity, uh, things related to supply chains that I think could bring a lot of benefit as well. Do you think that the the future of this industry will mostly be permissionless or like uh, permissionable? Because I, I know there's a lot of decentralized projects out there. Obviously, there's tons of different cryptos. We've heard of all the different blockchains, um, but it almost seems like some of these big companies, like the big Fortune 500 companies, aren't necessarily on board with a decentralized blockchain, and for uh, good reasons too. Um, they might want something that's more permissionable for IP reasons or for privacy or for like intercompany mm-hmm. stuff. Do you, do you think we're going to see permissionable or permissionless blockchains really kind of go mean, mainstream first before the other? I, 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 first of all, I think we're going to see both um, in terms of which goes mainstream first. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but uh, I really, I really think we're going to have both. I think the world is just going to need both kinds. Um, it's not an mm-hmm. either or. It's really a spectrum of needs and requirements. So, like you mentioned, um, you know, there are certain entities or situations in which you just uh, need to know the actors that are involved, or you need, uh, you know, privacy on the more privacy on the transactions. Now, there's a lot of research being done on uh, privacy with zero knowledge proofs and and other mechanisms, and those will be useful in many cases as well. Um, but I don't know if it's it's eventually going to replace all privacy ex- uh, use cases. So um, so yeah, I really I I don't see it as either or. I I um, I find that di- that. Uh, dichotomy kind of um, not useful. I think it's just sort of a distraction. It's it's let's keep the development going um, and work together and see what makes sense for the situation at hand with the existing technology that we have at hand. Right. Totally agree. Um, And in terms of the development, um, you, you guys are doing a lot of development at Hyperledger. How did you start working with with hyperledger and kind of what is hyperledger yeah so i i after about a year and a half at at tcs i shifted to the hyperledger team um i joined their ecosystem team and so for those of you who don't know what hyperledger is what we are is a open source software development project we are hosted by the linux foundation which has been around for 16 plus years um, fostering the uh, communities around open source software development projects. Um, I'm sure many of your listeners know about Linux, right? The um, mm-hmm. original sort of operating system. Um, and, and so that was the, the beginning of that. And, and since then, Linux Foundation has really sprouted more than 100 projects that relate to different uh, technologies, whether it be cloud computing, uh, networking, etc. And Hyperledger is one of those projects that focuses 
on um, on blockchain distributed ledger implementations that businesses can use. Right. I, I've actually looked at Hyperledger quite a few times uh, trying to try and understand it, but it's just such a huge umbrella of projects, um, which is really cool at the same time. So it looks like a lot's being developed. Yeah. Um, and- it's a strength. And also it also, it also makes it hard for people um, to kind of get a, a broad sense of who we are um, if they're, if they're totally fresh. So um so we, a lot of people think that Hyperledger is one ledger, um, and it's not. It's actually um, uh. several different ledgers and several different tools. So um, an umbrella, or as we like to call it, a greenhouse, um, is, is really what Hyperledger is, where projects are seeded and allowed to grow and incubate and, and uh, develop into um, uh, production projects that can be used in a variety of use cases. So uh, most people are familiar with Hyperledger Fabric. That's one of our frameworks um, because it was one of the first ones that was contributed to our project um, by IBM and Digital Asset. Um, but we also have Hyperledger Sawtooth, which was contributed by Intel. Uh, Burrow, Indy, Eroha, um, as other blockchain frameworks that exist within our greenhouse as well. Yeah, you guys definitely have a lot of frameworks and tools um, under that umbrella. <laughs> you should almost change the name from Hyperledger to like Hyper Umbrella or something so that it's not so confusing. <laughs> well, you should, you should post a message in our open source community and and, and make that suggestion. That's everything. Um, <laughs> Every that and that's what's I, I mean I'm joking but you know that's what's really cool about our community is it's completely open to participate in. So um, if you really want to get involved, you can start joining um, the mailing list and the phone calls and the chat rooms of our technical steering committee or or one of the specific projects that I just mentioned. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, start joining that conversation, contributing to that conversation because everything that's done is, is all in the open. Um, it's part of our antitrust policy. So mm-hmm. every call has to be public and, um, and able, able for anybody to join. Um, and so you can join that conversation and start, you know, providing input, um, or providing code or helping draft a white paper, um, et cetera, whatever it may be that that group is working on. What's the most active place to like submit feedback or like kind of engage with the community? Yeah, there's a few different ways. So if it's, if it's about um, kind of getting f- feedback for a specific framework or tool that you've worked with mm-hmm. or that you have questions on, um, each community has um a wiki page on our wiki.hyperledger.org. Mm-hmm. They have uh, regular calls, re- a mailing list that you can join, and a chat room. Um, a lot of times, the chat room and the mailing list are the most, or where you would kind of put that, uh, provide that feedback or ask questions. Um, but that's where the community lives, and so if you want to get in touch with them, that's what you would do. Okay, yeah, I'll definitely dive into that at some point. Yeah, the maintainers are on those mm-hmm. lists. Um, people who are actively building the code. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. We don't have to go through like 
all of the frameworks and all the tools, but like, what are like a few of them uh, that you're well aware of and how they work um, that you think are probably the most prominent at this point? Yeah. So, you know, if you're looking for a blockchain or a general purpose blockchain framework, um, you want to look at Fabric, you want to look at Sawtooth uh, and Eroha. Um, those are our blockchains that are going to be able to um, fit every use case. Um, they'll just have different styles, different ways in which they were built. Um, and so it can be sometimes a matter of preference or, or just really familiarity that brings um, someone to one project or, or the other. Uh, our other frameworks, we have Hyperledger Indie, which is very specific. It's not a general purpose blockchain framework. It's a digital identity framework. So it's specifically designed to be used for digital identity use cases. And um, that's a really exciting one. That one's been used in, um, in projects in uh, digital identity in Sierra Leone um, and also with uh, the government of Canada as well. And it's, it's, it's been a cool project to follow that I personally enjoy hearing about what they're doing. Um, and then Hyperledger Burrow is a smart contract Ethereum virtual machine. So they're not a, a general purpose blockchain framework. They are specifically um, focused on smart contracts. And, um, but what's really cool about Burrow is um, they're the uh, a permissioned Ethereum virtual machine, mm. essentially. And, um, and they collaborated with the Sawtooth community and with the Fabric community to allow for both of those blockchain frameworks to accept Ethereum transactions. So because of Burrow, uh, Fabric and Sawtooth uh, can handle Ethereum transactions. That's interesting. How, yeah. how do you make, um, I assume that the permissionable Ethereum virtual machine with Burrow is private, correct? Yeah. So it, you would be uh, setting up a, a, a network with known actors. Would it be so? Would it use Ethereum or Ether for those contracts? Um, you, you wouldn't need to necessarily. Um, if if your contracts don't have a um, financial component to them, which mm -hmm. they may not need, they might may not in a permission setting. Um, but you could. Is is Burrow something that could be used by? basically any company that wanted to utilize that or um, only the companies within like the umbrella of the project or that are involved with it? Oh, no. Yeah, no, absolutely. Anything, anything under the Hyperledger umbrella can be used by anyone. That's okay. Our code is completely open source. Um, anyone can just use the code and never even tell us about it. Um, that's the hard thing for my, for me and the people that I, you know, our team, our staff, um, is that you don't have to tell us there's no permission to use Hyperledger technology. Um, and so we are always trying to learn about how is it being used in different parts of the world. And we're always fascinated with how, you know, there's, there's, there, there's so much going on as a result of that. Um, it's hard to keep up with. How, how would, how would a, if you were a small business or an SME and you wanted to 
utilize some of the tools or the frameworks, how would you go about inquiring to learn about that? Would you have to have some third party who's knowledgeable of the code and the software? Or can you go like directly to the Hyperledger team? Like what's the avenue for that? Yeah. So it depends on uh, that person's or that company's level of knowledge or comfort and familiarity. Mm-hmm. If um, if they have someone who's who is experienced in blockchain, experienced in um, in in that technical area, then they may feel comfortable just go ahead and in grabbing the code themselves from GitHub. Um, so the first thing you would want to do is go to our um, website or wiki, um, go to that projects page, and then you'd have all the links of where you could download um, the code. They're all on GitHub, essentially. Um, that's also where you would uh, get the documentation. And if you're uh, comfortable with you know reading through that documentation yourself and, and figuring it out yourself, then that's how you would do it. Of course, a lot of people aren't at that level and so do need some help, do need some guidance. Um, the community can do a little bit of that for you, um, but understand that these are all, everyone in the community are are volunteers. And so there isn't um, a, uh, uh, like a hotline that you can call for Hyperledger Fabric. Um, you uh, can connect to the community and, and there's definitely a lot of people who are there to help as open source communities work, mm-hmm. right, to help people with some issues they have, starting up a network, um, questions they have, um, but it's going to be they're 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 going to expect that you've done some of your own reading, you've done some of your own homework, and you're not asking you know some real basic questions that could be answered that way, right? Right. So, um, but if you really need that uh, sort of service and handholding. Um, then there's a, a lot of companies that provide that, right? There's big names and there's a lot of um, small companies out there as well. So we have a vendor directory on our website for that reason. Our vendor directory has companies, it's under resources um, on our website, and it has uh, companies that are listed there that provide different kinds of services product offerings related to Hyperledger. They're all members of our consortium as well. And that's another thing that I haven't mentioned. Um, In addition to being an open source community um, where the technology is built completely in the open, we are also a consortium of about 275 members and growing. And, um, And so with membership, there's some benefits for example, you get list. You can get listed on our vendor directory on our website, um, and so that's a, that's a way in which you could find um, find someone to help you spin up that network if you need it. How does like a company become a vendor or a partner or contributor to Hyperledger? So, in terms of getting on our vendor directory, you just have to be a member of Hyperledger. To become a member of Hyperledger, you just have to express interest in, in joining. Um, if you are a nonprofit um, government institution association, you can join for free. Um, that's our associate membership. And, um, and we ask that those kinds of institutions contribute back to the community in a very specific way, um, since they are joining for free. Um, and then we have general and premier membership. And those are paid. Um, the fee uh, schedule is 
on our website. We're again, like a totally open book. Um, and it's based on uh-huh. the number of employees. Um, and so that's how you become a member of Hyperledger, but that's absolutely not how you contribute. Um, or the only way you can contribute. Um, a member of Hyperledger is contributing to the project because it allows for um, a, a staff that helps facilitate that community, that helps um, nurture, grow, um, support, and promote the Hyperledger community. Right? It's what allows me okay. to do what I do. Um, but in terms of contributing you know, code or contributing technical knowledge, None of that requires membership. That's part of the open source um, part of Hyperledger. And so you, if you have a bug to, to report, we'd love to have your help with that. Um, if you have code to contribute, um, there are ways you can do that as well. Or if you just really have some you know, technical knowledge that you want to uh, share and connect with others on, we have working groups and special interest groups that you can join that are either um, technical topic focus like architecture, performance, scalability, or sector focus like telecom, um, supply chain, public sector, etc. That you can mm-hmm. join as well, and that has nothing to do with um, paid membership. What if you were a like a consulting company that worked with a bunch of smaller businesses that necessarily don't like understand tech like this, and you work to like bring them the tech or explain them how it works or facilitate it for them. Would a company like that be able to be a member as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. You can join Hyperledge as a member. You could get, and then once you do, you would um, get listed in the vendor directory. Um, And then there's a lot of other things we do with our members. So we have an annual member summit um, that brings that that um, you know, exclusive group together to network and collaborate and share what they've been building on Hyperledger. We just actually had that event in Japan uh, two weeks ago, um, uh, and then we also attend about a lot of events. Like you know, we're at Consensus every year. We're at Hims, which is a healthcare-focused event. We're at Open um, uh, Open Source Summit. We're at Cybos. Um, and when we attend those events, our members are, are welcome at our booth to do demos um, and to speak with everyone who comes by as well. Um, we do case studies on our members as well. So if you go to our website, you can see that we have case studies on um, healthcare, on supply chain, on different examples of, of projects that are in production phase that are, are pretty advanced projects. And... Um, and we explain, you know, what it is that their what their value proposition is, what their um, impact has been. Okay, very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll have to check that out some more too. And I know kind of like everyone works together like in this space and whatnot, but does Hyperledger have like any indirect like competition in terms of like development and being an umbrella? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's funny because a lot of people, and I think, I think we've gotten maybe a little bit past that. Hopefully I feel like last year, a a lot of the, you know, kind of, uh, panel topics or, um, you know, just meetup topics that you'd see around there were very like Hyperledger versus X, you know? Um, and the thing is, is a lot of people see, Hyperledger as being competitive with Ethereum, with 
R3's Corda with Corum. And in some ways it is in the sense that these are definitely other examples of uh, widely known uh, dis blockchain distributed ledger frameworks that are s somewhat general purpose for some of them um, and are um, uh, available for enterprises to use and experiment with and choose from, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the way in which it's really kind of not competitive is that, um, like you said, um, it is we are an umbrella, and we in, we're here to provide whatever is um, uh, stable, uh, secure code that's useful for enterprises who want to take advantage of this technology. And so, if there's something interesting that's happening out there, there's no reason why it can't come into our community. Um, case in point, uh, you know, Ethereum transactions, right? Um, you can't really say Hyperledger versus Ethereum when um, several of our frameworks are compatible with Ethereum transactions. And, you know, like I said, we have Hyperledger Pearl, which is a permission smart contract EVM. So, um, you know, if there's something interesting that's happening out there in this space that could be useful for enterprises to leverage blockchain technology, um, it, there's no reason why it can't um, be absorbed into our community if it's something that's useful and if um, the people who are knowledgeable about it want to um, contribute it to an open source project like ours where it can grow and have the support um, and the governance that the Linux Foundation provides. Yeah, I it's interesting because there's like slight like indirect competition in a lot of ways in this space. But I mean, for the most part, everybody mm -hmm. works together because I mean, everyone's sharing the same goal and whatnot. Yeah, it's it's cool to see um, what Hyperledger is doing and where it's going and how it's kind of bringing all these companies together under this pseudo umbrella um, and developing all this stuff. Before we kind of uh, wrap up in a few minutes, what are like the future? Uh, what's the future outlook for Hyperledger? Or what are the goals that Hyperledger wants to to reach? Yeah. So. You know, I think a, a, a lot of what Hyperledger set out to do is, is what I kind of just mentioned, is really be a home for where enterprises can go to find the right technologies that work for their use cases. And be sure that those technologies are being built in a, um, in a structure that's, you know, uh, got good governance around it um, and uh, isn't dominated by one company or organization um, and therefore has potential future stability and sustainability. There's also been a lot of talk within our community about componentization. Um, so allowing, having, having um, uh, less, there, there be, there be less um, sort of wholly formed projects um, that are, are, have all these different features that just live in that project and instead kind of breaking out those different components so that it can be used across different projects. Um, and, and, and so that kind of um, portability or inter interoperability between our projects is something that really is a future goal um, for the organization. And it's something that we're already starting to see. So um, one of the latest things to come out of Hyperledger is a new project called Hyperledger Transact. And um, Transact really represents this continued evolution at Hyperledger towards this greater com componentization that allows a more rapid 
um, and responsible adoption of new blockchain technologies. And what it does is it's this platform agnostic library for executing transactions with smart contracts. So it's sort of decoupling the smart contract engine from the distrib- distributed ledger. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. So usually, you know, smart contract ex- execution is tied to that specific DLT, which limits the ability for you to reuse the code in that smart contract. And so what Transact hopes to do is to reduce the development effort across different distributed ledgers by providing a standard interface to execute smart contracts that's separate from the actual um, DLT. That's a new one, correct? Yep. That's a new one that just launched um, uh, this summer. (laughs) Very cool. When can people uh, look forward to seeing more about Transact? It's called Transact, correct? It's called Transact. So you go to our wiki.hyperledger.org and it's one of the projects that's listed there. And like with anything at Hyperledger, um, they've got a wiki page, a mailing list, a chat room, and regular phone calls. Um, On our website, hyperledger.org, we also have a blog. And that blog announcement really kind of does a good explanation of what it is. Um, So you can get a good idea of what it is from that. Um, but if you want to actually kind of get involved, you want to go to the wiki. Okay. Do you guys have like a medium page or do you guys just have a blog like on the website? Like what's a good place we to like blog. get Yeah, we have a blog on our website. We don't have a medium page. Okay. Is that a good place to get like information on like what's like new with Hyperledger? Yeah. So our, our blog and our Twitter um, will always be where we announce new projects where we announce new members that have joined, um, events that we're attending that we're going to be at, that you can find us and meet us at. Um, those are definitely the good places to look um, on our Twitter and our blog as well. Very cool. How can uh, the subscribers follow you and Hyperledger on social media? Or where, where, where can they follow you and learn more? Um, definitely the, Hi- the Hyperledger account is the best way. So at Hyperledger. Um, I'm on Twitter as well, um, at Karen Otoni, O-T-T-O-N-I. Um, but, um, I, I, to learn about Hyperledger, it'd be better to follow the the Hyperledger account. Awesome. Karen, thank you for coming on and everything and taking the time. Really appreciate it. Um, I definitely learned a lot more about Hyperledger as well. Um, it's quite a, quite a project, uh, with a lot of projects. (laughs) So a project. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me on. It was a pleasure speaking with you. You're very welcome. Anytime. Uh, Have a great day and talk to you soon. Okay. Bye.